Cool. So verse one says this, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now, when they look at this, this text, this psalm, it's believed that it's written in the context of David hiding in the wilderness, that he's probably uh, under uh, the pursuit of King Saul, we know that, you know, David had been anointed by Samuel to become the next king of Israel. And Saul, as his heart had turned from God and God had removed his hand of grace and blessing and put it upon David that Saul's heart raged against the Lord and raged against David. And he sought on many occasions to kill David. And finally, David reached the point where he had fled into the wilderness. And the scriptures tell us that he went and he hid among the strongholds of En Gedi. That's down by the Dead Sea where there's uh, fresh water rolling into the Dead Sea where there's lots of caves. Uh, scripture says that he, he uh, hid in the strongholds of the mountains. They, they, some wonder if he actually hid in that ancient fortress that we know of called Masada. That he hid in that area all along the Dead Sea there. And you read in... First Samuel, these amazing accounts of David fleeing from Saul and Saul pursuing him with his men and them being on opposite sides of a mountain as David, David's running and, and, and hiding in caves and, and all of these situations that he ends up with in, in uh, this situation with Saul. And so in my mind as I read this, here's what I picture. I picture David in a stronghold somewhere hidden in the hills, maybe inside a cave. And Saul is out there. He knows where Saul is. The army of Israel is with Saul and they are pursuing David. And David is hiding and he writes this psalm. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Not, not in Gedi, not Masada, not the mountains of Israel. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And David says, the Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. And I just think about that. I think, man, you know, life without Jesus, that's darkness. That's life without salvation. Paul said to the Ephesian church, he said, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. I love that. It actually says, the scripture actually says, not that you are in the light, but you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Paul says. You were in darkness. And it's amazing how the Lord does that when we think about salvation and, and being saved and coming to faith in Jesus, that salvation finds us when we're in darkness and the Lord brings his light. He doesn't leave us in darkness, but his light comes and things that were where we couldn't see, where we couldn't find our way, it becomes visible, visible because light is that natural agent that stimulates sight and makes the unseen visible. You know, it's like when you stumble around in the dark. Like you ever do that? You get up in the night and then it's like, okay, I need a glass of water and you forgot you put, the dog always sleeps on my side of the bed, you know? So I get out of bed and I'm like, is the dog there? <laughs> Looking for her not to step on her. Or, you know, you, you, you get up and you kick something in the dark. You ever kick the, the bedpost? I hate that, man. Those metal bedposts. Oh, middle of the night, baby toe, crunch. Ouch. And when you're walking in darkness, you know, remember when it's, it's like this. Feeling for the wall to find your way down. And you've got your hands out. You're trying to feel your way through the darkness. 
Because you can't see, you have to use your feelings and rely on feelings. And it's a terrible thing to have a life that's actually directed by your feelings. Like the Lord wants our, our lives to be directed by his promises. He wants us to see for us to walk in, in the light. And it's not that the Lord gives light, but David says he is light. The Lord is light. It's not that the Lord gives salvation. He says the Lord is salvation. And so, you know, you're, you're, here you are, you're, you're trying to feel your way through the darkness with your hands and then hand goes down the wall and you find the light switch. And you click it on. And it's like, oh, now I don't have to rely on my feelings because I'm in the light. I can see where I'm going. Light. And David says, well, it's my light. It's a personal pronoun. He's mine. It's mine. He's my light and he's my salvation. Of whom shall I be afraid? Of whom shall I be afraid? This is the guy who fought Goliath. And this reminds me of that story Remember Goliath and the boast of Goliath that when he came and he saw David and saw this young man, he hated him in his heart, the scripture says. And Goliath boasted in the strength of his arm. Goliath boasted in the strength of his flesh. He said, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. You come to me, little worm. And David boasted not in the arm of the flesh, but David boasted in real power. He said, you come at me with the you, you come to me with the sword and with the javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied in this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I like that part. And I'll give your dead bodies to the host of the Philistines this day and to the birds of the air and into the wild beasts of the earth. And the earth will know that there is a God in Israel. And this assembly, the assembly of Israel, will know that the Lord saves not with sword or spear. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into my hand. David, the Lord. That's why he's here hiding from Saul and he can say, no, the Lord, not, not these mounts. The Lord's the stronghold of my life. The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Of whom shall I be afraid? That's a bold, confident question. Of whom shall I be afraid? I know who my stronghold is. If God be for us, then who can be against us? That's what the scripture tells us. And so verse two says, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it's they who stumble. I think of this past deliverance for David with Goliath. Come to me, he said. You think you're going to give my flesh to the birds? You come to me. Come to me. Or, or sorry, Goliath said this. Come to me and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And that's, that's the enemy of our soul right there. That's, that's the desire and the heart of the evil one to serve you up. To make you a, a meal for wild animals. To tear you limb to limb and make you a feast for the sake of his malice and the sake of his hatred. And the enemy of our soul, he has no deficiency in his hatred towards us. No shortcoming in his murderous thoughts towards us. 
And David knew what it was like to be groping in the dark, trying to feel his ways around, but he, he wasn't groping or grasping at this point because, or trying to find his way because he knew that the Lord was the strength of his life. And like in the situa- situation with, with Goliath, it was, it was the giant who fell, not David. David says, my adversaries, my foes, it's they who stumble. My adversaries, my foes, it's they who fall. Remember Jesus, the night that he was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? There with the 11, Judas had betrayed him at that point in time and he was there praying with the 11 and uh, the scribes and the priests came and they brought the, the temple guards and some Roman soldiers, and they gathered to arrest him. And the scripture tells us very clearly, how did they come? They came under the cover of darkness in the night. And as they came upon him, knowing all that would happen to him, the scripture says that as they came forward towards Jesus, he asked them, who who do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. And they drew, they drew back and they fell to the ground. That's what the, the gospels tell us. That they drew back. The, the enemy came groping in the dark with this wicked plan and Jesus, the light of the world, stepped forward into it and said, I am. And the enemy was driven back, fell to the ground. David says, it's my adversaries, it's my foes. They stumble, they fall. God said there was light. Verse three says, though an, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Think of David, hiding in a cave with Saul's army. Though, though encamped against him, though an army encamped against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. You know, David didn't know if the enemy would make some sudden violent attack and, a pound, and pounce on him like a, a beast stalking and attacking in the night, devouring its prey. Uh, or, or maybe as I think, is m- maybe it wasn't so much a sudden attack, but that he could see Saul settling in with his army, that he was going to settle in almost like a, a long siege and, and wait David out and rise against him at a time when he just had all the numbers in his favor. And that's how the enemy works. You know, sometimes it's that surprise attack. And sometimes it's like you see the armies of the enemy coming. And in, in, in my mind, I picture Lord of the Rings. The armies coming and him assembling and gathering their numbers as they get ready to attack. But no matter what the tactics might be, the enemy did not frighten David. David said, I'm confident. The end of verse 3. Yet I will be confident Why? Because his faith was in the Lord. And faith is a shield. Faith protects you from the enemy's blows. I will be confident. David had confidence. It's been said this, that confidence is the, the child, the offspring of experience. Why do you have faith? Why do I have faith in the Lord? Why did David have faith in the Lord? Because we have seen or we have experienced the deliverance of the Lord in the past and we trust him. Lord, you'll do it again. I put my hope in you. 
you know, it'd be fun this morning to take time and go, you know, what dangers has the Lord delivered you from? To go around the room and to hear the testimonies of what, what people would share. How God has delivered you. And David, in his heart, was recounting, God, I can be confident in you. You've delivered me in the past. And confidence is the child of experience. Verse four, he says this. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I love verse four. This is, a, this is a great verse. It should be marked in your Bible. He says, one thing. One thing, Lord, I'm asking. Not three things. Not ten things. Not a hundred things. One thing. You know that a divided man is a defeated man. Jesus said it this way. He said, you cannot serve God and mammon or, or money. You can't serve God and money. And you know, when Jesus said that, was he taking a shot at money? I, I would say yes, but the truth is we know this. You, you need money. He wasn't, Jesus wasn't taking so much a shot at money as he was taking a shot at being a divided man or woman. You can't be divided. Because a divided Man or woman is a defeated person. And so David prioritized to the singular. He said one thing. And I'm, I'm glad about that. I like that. It's like it's my kind of math. Simple math. I'm glad it's one thing. Remember when you're a kid and you're like doing your multiplication tables and learning all of those things and learning how to do division? How to divide? But when it comes to serving God, there's no division. Because to be divided is to be defeated. One thing, David said, I'm desiring. Remember in Luke chapter 10 when Jesus is at the home of Mary and Martha and Martha is slaving away in the kitchen. And there's Mary seated at the feet of the Lord listening to his teaching and Martha began to complain, Jesus said this to her. He said, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. One thing is needed. Mary has chosen it. It won't be taken from her. One thing. And I think about that. I think, you know, you know I, it's just so easy for myself and for all of us to get going in 10 million directions. What's well, says one thing? One thing first. Seek me. Spend time with me. It seems to me when I think about that, that, that the Lord looks very much at the desires of our heart, you know, that he's like weighing those. And what's, what's your heart longing for and, and wanting? The Lord takes the will of the heart and, and he, he considers it as more than he looks at our actions, I think, so, so often. And David had this, this desire, one thing, but that one thing had to lead to action for him. He had to, take, he had to take steps. He had to be purposeful. He had to be resolute in his desire for that one thing. You know, desire never cut my lawn. Desire never washed my truck. Desire never brushed my teeth. I brushed my teeth. I washed my truck. And I get the kids to cut the lawn. Delegation. Desire has to lead to action. D David said, one thing I desire. 
And, and there, there'll be no harvest if the seeds of desire don't sow themselves into activity. And when we think about David, when you think about the, the success of David, this great king, the man after God's own heart, this man who had all of this amazing public success and this public confidence that he could vocalize, it was because of the one thing in his life that he had set straight first. The one thing he desired took priority. That's his private obedience to the Lord. He sought God. David knew the most important part of life is the part of life that nobody else sees. Seeking God. The time and the presence of, of God. And it, it couldn't be negotiated. He took time to seek the Lord and to be in his presence and to get his directions from him. And it meant setting priorities. One thing. And think about David. His life was busy. Father, grandpa, king, Wives, a husband, all, all of these things. But there was a setting of priorities in his life. One thing, Lord. One thing. What's the one thing you desire? Martha, Martha, busy with many things. One thing is needed. And there's nothing that we need more than that clear and constant vision and picture of Jesus to sit at the master's feet and to be taught by him. And when you have that vision, it saves you in times of trouble like David was in. It enables you in the midst of trouble to lift your head and to look to Jesus and put your hope there. He said, one thing I desire, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Like I was thinking, that's why we're here this morning. That's why we gathered like the heart of this is this. We want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord to look upon him. Verse five says, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Love this. He'll hide. He will conceal me. He will lift me. Shelter. So he'll hide me in his shelter. In the worst of dangers, I will have a shelter, a refuge, and it'll be in the Lord. This is actually a reference to the king's tent. And when the king would go off to battle and he would set up his tent, his tent would be set in the middle of the entire army. The royal pavilion would be set up and that's where the king would stay. And then the mighty man and the armies of Israel would surround so that if you're going to get to the king's tent, you had to go through the army. And David says this, the Lord will do this for me. He's going to put me in his shelter. I'm with the Lord in his tent. He's my king and I'm with him. And to get to me, you've got to go through his armies. It's a beautiful picture. The center of the camp. That shelter guarded by all hours and not just a shelter but the king is there present with him the god god was with him and the lord was entertaining him and giving him hospitality and saying you're with, you're with me you you can you can rest in my tent there's food to eat here and there's no fear in this tent you can you can rest and be house here you, I, he will hide me in his shelter that word hide in the hebrew is the word treasure he will hide me like a treasure in his tent, in the midst of his army. 
Beautiful picture. He says, he'll conceal me under the cover of his tent. It was the custom in the ancient Near East that when a visitor entered a host tent, a host tent, that the, that the host was personally responsible for their protection. And it, personally responsible for their provision, that this, this floppy fabric tent actually became a fortress where there was protection and there was provision. I've told, maybe some of you have heard this story before, but this is a great story from my childhood. But, you know, when I was a kid, we, we went to a, a family camp I was about five years old, and my older cousin was there. His name was Jody, and Jody was a troubled kid, but I was hanging out with him at camp. And he was eight or nine, and I was five, and we were wandering around the camp, and we went into this barn at the back of the camp, and we found this nice old heritage truck all covered in dust. And we proceeded to pick up rocks and to smash out the headlights. So I participated this in this with my cousin, and then off we went to the rest of activities around camp. And then word got out. Somebody's been in the barn and smashed the headlights on the old truck. And so Jody said, come on, we're going to go hide. So we went to his tent, and we hid in his tent. And I remember there, as we're hiding in the tent, three men came, and they called to us inside the tent, and Jody said this, he put his arm out like this. It's amazing some of these things that stick out to you and then the Lord brings them back later in life. He said, you wait here. And I stayed in the musty tent. Remember those orange nylon tents that you could see all the shadows and all that stuff? And I watched as there was a shadow of three men standing outside and my cousin went and he stood before those men and he took all the heat and all the blame and all of the punishment. He hid me in his tent. Well, he took it. And that musty little tent became a fortress of protection and provision for me, even though I was guilty. <laughs> even though I was guilty. David says of the Lord, he'll conceal me in his tent. It's actually a reference to the tabernacle because there wasn't a temple in Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant was still housed in a, in a tent and, and no one, you know, that, that tent, that most holy place, no one dared to enter the most holy place, just the high priest. And that once a year with blood. Why? Because if you entered there unworthy into the presence of God, man, you, it's toast. You're, you're done. You're dead. You die. And yet think about what does David say? Where are we concealed? He's speaking of the most holy place here. The Lord hides us in the holy place where his presence is, where no one can get at us. What enemy will enter that most holy place? You don't mess with the Lord. We know that. He's our, he's our provider. He's our sovereign. He's our, he's our sacrifice. And, and he conceals us and he protects us from the harm of the enemy. And when the enemy should dare to enter the most holy place where the Lord has hidden us in Jesus... Man, the enemy's toast. David says he'll lift me high on a rock. He'll set me high on a rock out of reach in a, in a place where there's firm footing, where, where the enemy can't get me. He'll lift me high on a rock way up out of reach where the ground isn't shifting or moving, where the footing is stable. That's where the Lord will set me. 
So David paints this picture, this threefold refuge of shelter and tent and a rock. And so he says in verse 6, Now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. David's so sure of victory here, he just, he just says, man, I'll lift my head. I lift my head to the Lord. My, my head will not hang in defeat as I look at the hordes before me. So sure of victory that he like arranged his heart. He like moved the furniture of his heart. He said, I'm not hanging my head. The enemy's going to be defeated. And he planned that heart. He planted it. He planned his heart. You ever make plans in your heart? Of course you do. Godly people do that. They make plans in their heart. They pray. They pray in faith. See, Lord, I'm, I don't know, but I'm not going to waver here. I'm going to trust you in the midst of this. I'm going to trust you for victory. And David had done that. He had already decided the outcome. It was going to be victory. In the Lord, he, he arranged his heart. And the place that he longed for in the midst of this conflict that was going on as he's, as he's surrounded by the enemy, he said, Lord, I'm longing for your tent. And when this is all sorted out, I, I'm going to go to that place and I'm going to offer to you praise. I'm going to sing of your triumph. And singing as we sang this morning, it's one of the ways that we express thankfulness uh, to the Lord, shouts of joy, making melody to your, in your heart to the Lord. Th those are a natural expression of thankfulness. I woke up this morning, I had the funniest song in my heart. <laughs> I, I, I used to listen to a lot of Christian metal, punk bands and all that stuff, you know. I still do, if you didn't know that. Bit of a metalhead. And I woke up with a song from the early 90s by a Christian punk band called The Crucified. And... The song in my heart was this, release yourself to the grace of God. That was the chorus of their song. Release yourself to the grace of God. <laughs> and that's what I woke up. I thought, wow, Lord, I can't believe this is the song in my heart. And I'm like, okay, Lord, I release myself to your grace. There's nothing, you know, Mike, I appreciate your responses this morning. There's nothing like a hearty amen. To have a melody in your heart. To make a shout of joy to the Lord. Because you can't be silent when God brings victory. It's like when your sports team's victorious, you shout. When you experience the victory of God, you shout. They said, I'm going to offer, Lord, shouts in your tabernacle. Love it. Faith. David was starting to soar here as you go through this. And, and faith does that. You know, fear, fear sinks, right? Fear like pulls you down. Fear's like drowning. Faith is like soaring like an eagle. Look at verse seven. Hear, O Lord, he says. Hear, O Lord, when I cry to you, be gracious to me and answer me. Be gracious to me, Lord, answer me. From, from, from praise, David begins to ask, Lord, hear me, God, when I cry to you, when I call to you, I'm asking God for your grace. I'm asking for your unmerited favor. I'm asking you, God, I, I'm not coming on the basis of what I deserve or who I am. I'm coming on the basis of who you are. Lord, I'm asking for your grace. I'm asking you for an answer. And you know, sometimes as followers of Jesus, we're, we're singing songs of thankfulness and we're shouting with joy and we're making melody 
in our hearts to God, but other times it's just like a cry for grace. God, help, Lord. It's like all, all you can do to say, Father, I need you. Father, I need your mercy. Father, I need your grace. I need your favor. And it's amazing how quickly life can swing between those two extremes. Really quick. And grace is, grace is the hope of sinners and grace is ref, the refuge of saints. The hope of sinners and it's the refuge of saints. And so verse eight says, you've said, seek my face and my heart says to you, your face, Lord, I do seek. David's confidence didn't cause him to, didn't prevent him to be uh, unconcerned about himself. He was still concerned. You know, it's one thing to view the beauty of the Lord in his sanctuary. It's another thing to see the armies of the enemy approaching or out there surrounding you on the, on the battlefield or whatever it is. And, and I, I imagine, you know, it's like, God, I need your grace, you know. David's doing some heart checks. It's like, well, what if this is off in my life? What's this? What if this is off in my life, you know? What, what if there's sin and the Lord abandons me in the midst of the battle? And so when David cried out in, in, in his caution, he said, I need your grace, Lord. And God answered him. And God said this to him, David, seek my face. Amazing. Amazing that, because when, you know, when the Lord's face shines upon you, that's like the greatest, it's the greatest. When he's pleased with us and he'll help us, but when he turns his face from us, man, when he turns his face, and we gotta search our hearts and confess our sin. And, and here was the secret of this man, David, when the Lord said, seek my face, seek my face, David. David didn't say, well, I'll get to it, Lord and not do it. Yeah, I'll do that later. He didn't say, is, is tomorrow okay, Lord? Like, would it be okay if tomorrow I seek your face? No, when, when the Spirit said, seek my face, David immediately said, Lord, your face I seek. And if we would have the Lord hear us, we have to be cautious that we respond, careful to respond to his voice. Don't you wish you were more sensitive to the Lord? And it always starts with like taking those first steps. When he says things, you do it. You do it. So that you grow in sensitivity to his touch and to his voice. And so often we say to the Lord, I say to the Lord, yeah, yeah, I will, Lord. And then you got no intention to do anything. Or la later, Lord, because I got this going on or that going on, it's a little more important than what you're telling me to do. It's like when you ask your kids to do chores. Yeah, dad. I know, dad. I know. I know. I don't care what you know. Do it. Do it. <laughs> and so David, from the heart, he, he speaks from the heart. And, and it's cool that it says, he says here, my, my heart says, your face do I seek. He let his heart speak. And it's amazing that the heart speaks. It's not just the mouth that speaks. Our heart speaks. And sometimes it's like good to close your mouth and let your heart speak. Communicate to the Lord from the heart. See, God, your face I seek. Not your hand. I seek your face. 
And to seek the face of God is to seek his favor, to seek his presence. He says in verse nine, hide not your face from me. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. He says, hide not your face from me. Earlier we saw that word hide, and in the Hebrew it means to treasure, that, you, that you're treasured in the tent of the Lord. But this word means this. It's a different Hebrew word. It means this, don't conceal, Lord. If there's one thing I don't want you to hide, if there's one thing I don't want you to conceal, it's your face. Don't hide your face from me, God. And David knew men whom the Lord who had, had concealed his face from them, like King Saul. God had turned his face away from Saul, not responded to Saul. They'd been, Saul had been put away for being unfaithful. And David, I bet, is thinking of this as he writes this. And he's conscious of his own faults. He's conscious of his own shortcomings. And, and it made him anxious. If he had one anxiety, it would be this, that God would be patient with him. That should be the anxiety of your life. God, be patient with me. I'm slow to learn. Don't worry about anything else. Just ask the Lord to be patient with you. To pour his grace out upon you. That he would continue to be long-suffering and gracious. And when you know that what you have is because of the grace of God, David knew that. What he had, what you have, what I have is because of God's grace. Then this becomes your prayer. God, don't take your grace away from me. Don't take your unmerited favor. Cast me not off, forsake me not, he says, O God of my salvation. Don't, don't abandon, Lord, the works of your hands. I, I'm counting on you, Lord. I'm counting on your name. I'm counting on your grace, I'm counting on your steadfast love. Verse 10, he says, my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. I don't, I don't think David's parents forsook him, but I, I think probably they're long gone by this time. Passed on when he writes this psalm. And so he's alone in that sense. He doesn't have parents. But he says, the Lord will take me in. That's acceptance, adoption. The spirit of adoption. Paul said, you have not received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. By him we cry, Abba, Father. See, churches, followers of Jesus, our cry is not fear. Our cry is Father. We don't have to cry in fear. We cry out, Father. Fa we call to our Father for grace. Father, not fear. That's the spirit of adoption. He says in verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. It's this prayer for guidance, this beauty of submission. I'm not going my way, Lord. I don't want to go my direction. I'm looking to you for direction. I want to walk in your ways, Lord. Teach me how. It's humility. It's the, this is the prayer of a teachable spirit. Teach me your way and lead me on a level path. Verse 12, give me not up to the will of my adversaries for, a for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. It's a prayer for protection. I was reading just like in prep, I was reading like uh, some of the accounts of Saul chasing David and I saw something I hadn't seen for the first time. 
that there was this group of people called the Ziphites. And when you read, it's the Ziphites who are always reporting to Saul where David is. It's like, oh, the, the Ziphites went to Saul. And they said, hey, he's over here. And then the Ziphites went to Saul. And they said, oh, he's over here. And I'm like, oh, man, I can't believe it. Who are these people? Amazing. False witnesses, he says, have risen up against me. Ziphites. And so he prays for protection. Remember Daniel? You think about Daniel, and we know the story of Daniel in the lion's den. It, it appears that he was given up to the will of his enemies. His enemies would have him thrown to the lions, devoured by the lions, torn to pieces. But the angel of the Lord saw that the enemy would not have their way. David does this. He goes to the Lord and he talks about the slander of the enemy. Their breath is violence with regards to me, Lord. They can't speak without cursing. They breathe violence. They breathe threats. You know, the scripture says that that's what the Apostle Paul was like before he met Jesus. That he was breathing threats against the church. Breathing out threats against the people of God. He was the enemy of the Lord. And so David's doing something very practical in this psalm. He, he starts out with incredible faith. He's saying, I am confident the Lord's my stronghold. But as he continues in this psalm, he, he begins to move into caution, I think. Incredible faith and then incredible caution because he asked God to protect him. He asked God to guide him. He asked God for grace. He's saying, God, I'm not going to take your blessing for granted. I'm not going to take what you have done for me in the past for granted. And so as much as I believe that you are a stronghold, I'm also going to be cautious before you and say, Lord, I still need it. I still need what you give. The Scottish preacher, Andrew Bonner, said this, let us be watchful, let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. That was David. Or I'm going to be watchful. I'm not, I'm not going to take for granted your grace. Verse 13, he says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. There's a cool little footnote there, verse 13, the word look. In the footnote of your Bible, it says this. It could be translated, I had fainted unless I had believed. Oh, had I not believed. David's actually considering what would have happened if he had not believed the Lord. If he had become faint in heart, and it's a common thing for, for us to become faint in heart. David had defeated the lion and the bear. He had defeated Goliath, and yet he was susceptible to being faint in heart. And one of the blessings of following Jesus is to be looking and longing for the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living where the goodness of God, we sing that this morning, just love that song, all my life you've been faithful. To, to consider the, the land of the living where the goodness of the Lord has driven out the wickedness of man, driven out fear, driven out sighing, crying, death, sin, disease, sickness, driven it all out. David says, I, I'm going to, I am, I'm going to look upon, I believe I'm going to look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And we wait for that day. 
And until that time, we fix our sights on the goodness of God. And, and you notice here that faith has the ability to see that the sight of faith says, I shall look. I'm going to look. Because faith not only sees, but faith speaks. I am going to see the goodness of God in the land of the living. And then the last verse says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Our generation isn't that good at waiting, aren't we? I, I mean, more than any generation in the history of the world, we're, we're exposed to total instant gratification. So patience for us is not easy. I, I decided this morning, we, we've been emptying out the fridge, so I went to get some food. I'm like, oh, there's nothing to eat in this freaking house. So I, I'm like, okay, I'm going to Timmy's for a breakfast sandwich this morning. And then I had to wait. There's like five cars in front of me. I'm like, come on, good grief. Can we get out of here? Um, you know, God help that coffee server. Or, or think about if it's roll up the rim. You, do you finish your coffee before you roll up the rim? We're, we're not very patient. Don't tell me to wait. But David says this. You gotta wait for the Lord. Wait. Wait for the Lord. Instead of rushing ahead, David waited for the Lord. Because faith and patience, they go together. And I don't really like that, that faith and patience go together, but they do. And so he, he says, wait for the Lord. Spurgeon said this. Wait at his door with prayer. Wait at his foot with humility. Wait at his table with service. Wait at his window with expectancy. D David says, strengthen your heart. Look at that verse again. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. You know when your heart fails, your strength fails. Right? Like if you've had heart disease or had someone in your family that has a heart disease, when the heart fails, you've seen it, strength fails, breath goes. Because a strong heart makes a strong arm. David says, let your heart be strong. Let your heart take courage because a strong heart will lead to a strong arm. Wait for the Lord. The heart's the wellspring of life. And you know the promise of Isaiah chapter 40 verse 31 says, they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They will, shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. A great psalm. A great psalm. And, and some of the things that, that jump out to me in the psalm are just simply this, that faith is a sustaining power. You recount God's faithfulness in your life and you look forward and you say, I'm going to be confident in the Lord. But as you have that confidence, we need to practice what David has. It's incredible faith with incredible caution. God, is still, it's still all by your grace. Totally confident, but Lord, you abandon me, I'm done. I need you. I need your presence. I need you here with me. And then this last word that David says, wait for the Lord, wait. You know, I, I, I don't know how your week's been, what you had going on, what's happening in your life, I want to tell you, wait for the Lord. Incredible faith, incredible caution. He'll hide you. He's got you. 